Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry of the EAA Aviation Museum. And we are flying. It's uh, up, up in the air there. We're watching uh, Apollo 13 has cleared the tower. Uh, we're watching all the uh, computer activity going on with uh, uh, with the dis- display of the disky on uh, on the screen in front of uh, Jim Lovell, and uh, we switch over to a view of uh, the famous eight ball. Which uh, actually, Chris, you could probably talk a little bit more about the eight ball than I can. I know it's kind of an artificial horizon, but I know there's a lo- whole lot more than that. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know a ton about it. I mean, really, outside of that, uh, I know it's obviously based on some sort of a gimbal. And you've got to be careful that, uh, as you'll see here in the movie, that uh, you can kind of throw them off their uh, sort of off their setting, and then the instrument's completely useless until you be able to get it back down on the ground. To me, it looks like you know, like I said, something uh, sort of like an artificial horizon that we use in an aircraft, kind of keep the attitude of the aircraft um, where you would need it, wings level or anything like that. It's easy when you're looking at the window and you could automatically align an airplane, not a big deal. But the minute you start going into clouds or on instruments, it's a lot harder than you think. I assume that that instrument is something similar to that, operates similar to uh, uh, to something like one of our uh, uh, artificial horizons or DG or something like that. Yeah, it ha- it has a uh, it's an it's an iner- inertial uh, sensor. What it has is a gyroscope that, if anybody that's ever played with a gy- gyroscope and you try to move it and change it, it it kind of forces itself back into its own attitude. So. That, that instrument that we're looking at is inertially based, so it has a gyroscope spinning around. It's got a motor motor running it and uh, keeping it in w- one frame of reference so that no matter which way the uh, ship is turning, it will be able to figure out where it is in, you know, in, the, in the scope of things on, on the X, Y, and Z axes. Um, now, Jim, problem, is that, is that nope. correct that if you, uh, I guess, uh, it would overstress uh, the... Aircraft are turned sort of uh, too haphazardly. You would actually knock it off its its setting. You wouldn't be able to use it. It would be yeah in op, that, in op for the rest of the flight. That's right. It's kind of on springs there that the measurement springs are are, are holding it in place and and judging from the tension on the different springs. That's how it gives it the reading that you see. So if you're bouncing it a bit and uh, the gyroscope is what they call uncaged, it's not locked down so that it can't you know fall off where it was. You'll lose your uh, point of reference so it will become just a, a a useless box on the on the screen which becomes very difficult when you're say a quarter million miles from home <laughs> bad way to find yourself with that <laughs> yeah yeah so you don't want to reach toward the the boundaries of of where it is they call that a it's it, it rests on gimbals so what you don't want to do is bang it against the edge of one of those uh those gimbals so that you wind up in, in what they call gimbal lock it doesn't you know it, it becomes entirely useless so just keep from cracking that egg. You know, it's it's a compass that works in three different uh, axes. We watch Jim Lovell reading, uh, get, getting the readings off there. The uh, Swigert's looking at stuff, and he said that the velocity's right on the line. And uh, uh, Lovell announces that their roll com- is complete. As we talked about yesterday, they're aligned north and south, which way they're going to go 
uh, as they as they cross over the Earth's uh, Earth's horizon, and uh, now they're pitching. They're doing what they call a gravity turn. In as as we talked about yes yesterday, anybody who's ever played uh, the Kerbal Space Program, you know that one of the way what you need to do first is gain a lot of altitude and then do a uh, what they call a gravity turn, where you're trying to aim toward that horizon and get there as fast as you can, so you can build up your um your the circle that that uh, that ellipse that's forming the orbit that you're trying to get into he says there that the uh the pitch starts happening and uh, then we get the first uh, abort uh, abort mode call capcom who at the time was joe Kerwin, but uh here is we only we, in this movie we only have one capcom that just keeps, seems to <laughs> never leave his chair but he says uh, 13 standby for mode one bravo so this this would probably be a great time to talk about the different abort modes, uh, Apollo's in you know, every spacecraft has a different different way to get out of. And while you're on a launch, you have to know a different way of getting the crew away from uh, a malfunctioning rocket. Apollo had a series of abort modes that would change as the altitude and speed of the of the craft increased. So the first the first kind of abort would be on the pad. If there was something wrong on the pad. They could slide down those uh, those escape uh, cables that we had talked about, um, but that's probably not the best thing to do. The best thing to do is just to stay in the ship as long as they're you know they're not attached to the white room, and uh, do something called a pad abort, where they'd fire off the launch escape system, that big tower that sits atop the uh, atop the command module. It, the tower would pull them away from the uh, uh, from the gantry and land them out in the ocean. And then, uh, very similar to that, mode one, which is where all the where, where the first stage is still attached to the ship, uh, they had a bunch of different sub modes, and there was uh, the first one being mode one alpha that worked from oh right from launch to about almost ten thousand feet. Mode one is the it's still it's very similar to the pad abort. The escape tower would pull the uh, command module away from the rest of the ship, and uh, then head out east to uh, drop the command module into the ocean, and it would be like a regular post-reentry landing. Second one, which we're, which we're getting the call out now, is, which means they're above, it was somewhere around like either nine or 10,000 feet. Mode 1 Bravo, which would be the rocket is start, it starts pitching. As he said, he said they were starting to pitch, so the, the pitch would start turning the, the ship toward the east. And since it's already pointing east, you don't want to have those, uh, those canards uh, firing. So what the launch escape system would do is just pull the ship straight out ahead of the trajectory of the Saturn V, and once it got out there, then it would spin the uh, spin the ship out to land on a normal splashdown. One of the things about uh, splashdown is that you had to get the parachutes to work. The back end of the ship had to be going in the forward direction of the uh, of the ship's trajectory. You couldn't you couldn't go nose first and try to let the parachutes go because the parachutes would become fouled in the command module. So you had to make sure that the big blunt end of the command module was out in front. So the the launch escape tower would be responsible for flipping the ship around and making sure that the back end of the command module was pointing at the ocean. After Mode 1 Bravo came Mode 1 Charlie. When Mode 1 Charlie, the difference between Mode 1 Bravo and Mode 1 Charlie was that the air would be too thin. That's like from about maybe 100,000 feet up in the air uh, and above uh, while it was still attached to the first stage. 
Mode 1 Charlie, the difference between Mode 1 Bravo and Mode 1 Charlie would be that in Mode 1 Charlie, the uh, the winglets that are on the launch escape system wouldn't work because the air is too thin. So after the launch escape tower jettisoned itself from the command module, the astronauts would have to rely on the command module to use its own thrusters to turn the big end of the ship toward the ocean uh, so that the parachutes would work. So those are the first Mode 1s. We can talk about Mode 2, but let's, let's hold it off for tomorrow where, where they would be using Mode 2. So we'll, we'll hold off on Mode 2, but now you know all the Mode 1 Bravos and Mode 1 Charlies. So we'll, we'll, we'll follow more with that tomorrow's episode. I couldn't imagine having to be the person to, you know, be the commander who has to decide whether or not you're going to board or not over a, an issue um, at any stage. That, <laughs> that's a tremendous amount of responsibility. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty scary. I mean, there's a there there's a moment uh, actually comes up here when the uh, right after we see uh, the, the sky start turning dark, turning into space time. Lovell says uh, EDS to manual uh, on the uh, on the inboards as the as the inboards of the Saturn one cut off. EDS is the um, uh, it's the escape detection system or the emergency detection system. I've seen it written two ways. But what it is is in those first those first few moments of flight in during the mode one alpha, things happen so fast that the astronauts might not be able to react to a sudden explosion, a change in pressure. They, they wouldn't be able to have time to pull the handle. So the EDS system would uh, pull the handle for them. And uh, once he got to that point where he's, he could say EDS to manual, that meant that uh, he didn't have to worry about the computer ending their flight. So he could he could turn it off, and it's it's all down to what you know, pulling that aboard handle. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about mode two tomorrow on that. We watch uh, the the end of the first stage here. You'll see the Ullage motors. That's the uh, the Ullage motors act to pull the pull the first stage away from the interstage and the and the second stage. So you'll see that little jolt as it as it drops it. Uh, you, you you see that classic picture of the first stage falling away and then the interstage. That's the one that every time you see a, an Apollo documentary, they'll show the picture of that interstage falling away, that big that big O-shaped oh, yeah, uh, yeah. interstage. Famous away. shot. I, I think that's from a test uh, shot too, isn't it? It is actually right. It's 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 from Apollo four. That, that's that's what the I first yeah the first launch. So, but it it looks so good. It's every time you have a space <laughs> show, you'll have you have to put it I, in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. When they had the uh, the Star Trek episode, when they went back in time with Gary Seven, they they, they managed to squeeze that one in somehow to put put that interstage <laughs> picture. But then you see the uh, the the second stage, the S two engines ignite. So now we're in what's known as Mode Two. So all the abort modes to follow will be a different. They'll have different things to a uh, uh, tree lion to get uh, uh, to get back to Earth. Mode Two actually begins right as. Uh, Lovell jettisons the launch escape system, so the, he he jettisons it manually, and uh, off it flies away. And then uh, <laughs> the great news on this one is that uh, Fred Hayes finally gets his window on the right hand side because the boost protective cover has been uh, over the top of his window, and uh, and it goes away. And uh, then Lovell, at the end of this minute, reports that there's a tower jettison. So tower jet. And off it goes, and that that really actually starts mode two. But we'll talk about more about mode two and what what will happen uh, afterwards on that tomorrow. Great, great work by a digital domain here, isn't it? I mean, it it, oh, it's it seems to get better and better. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't know any better, you'd swear this was 
you know, a, an actual uh, spacecraft. And uh, I mean, when you're watching the model, you know, the 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 CGI and the model work. I mean, it looks just uh, just so seamless that you you really you know you really forget you're not looking at the real thing, and that's the ultimate compliment I think to anybody that's trying to make uh, something like what they do. Yeah, and 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 definitely uh, daring to recreate that famous scene of the interstage falling away. It, it's so it really is a gutsy move to to do that to say you know this is this is how good we can be, you know, showing showing the uh, the Bahamas and the Caribbean flying away in the distance. It's a it's a stunner. <laughs> I actually I actually didn't realize that wasn't the actual footage. Oh okay. <laughs> so wow. So I guess that's uh, that's where it puts me. I just thought that was the actual shot, just kind of remastered. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's I mean I, you can see as we were talking earlier the you know NASA asking where'd you get those great shots? We need that film. And yeah. it's like no, no, no. It's uh, yeah, it's a little bit better than the uh, sixteen millimeter cameras that they they sent up with them but uh yeah be- just beautiful it, it's the, the lighting the all the different textures of the smoke as it as it clears out of the way and uh you know even things like the uh the heat energy in the in the outboard motors of the first stage you know as it's cooling down it's just still red hot engines just a just a beautiful a beautiful piece yeah yeah that's well done and uh, definitely Oscar time for uh, for Kevin Bacon there. <laughs> he just <laughs> he just has those great expressions of oh, yeah. this is really. <laughs> uh, I love it. Uh, yeah, he's uh, you know he was something that I wouldn't when I first heard that you know he was going to be in the movie. I remember like, oh, that's the guy from Footloose. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I uh, wasn't sure how he'd fit in. He actually fit in really well into the movie. Yeah, yeah, no, I think he he did he did great. And uh, you know, this is one of the watermark movies for Tom Hanks too. I mean, he was. I still think of him from Bosom Buddies and Big and things, and it's like, really, he's going to be in a, in a drama? And it just, it really it really came across great. He really, all, uh, it, this was a great, a, a well-cast film. I think everybody was uh, was well done. I don't I don't think Ken Mattingly minded uh, Gary Sinise having a, a full head of hair, <laughs> but it was, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a nice touch having, having Gary in there. Absolutely. Just little things as, you know, as you skip through stuff frame by frame, watching the Booth protective cover flying off the uh, off the top of the, the command module and digital domain doing stuff like adding one of the biggest problems in doing animation is that you can make very fast cam- virtual cameras uh, to film these things, but it doesn't look like how your eyeball feels when you're watching stuff. So just moments of uh, having. Uh, the the stars change into streaks of light as the cam the you know, the virtual camera is tracking that booth protect cover. It really uh, sells it as a realistic uh, image. And, uh, and then the the editing of you know timing that with the booth protect cover going and and Fred Hayes getting his his window at, with with just the, sh- the sun shining through it. It's uh it really it really gives you a feeling that you're really watching a a launch to the moon. Absolutely, yeah. They, I mean, they executed it flawlessly, and uh, yeah. and as far as the Gary Sinise aspect, I love it. I also love the fact that he went on to narrate uh, uh, when we left Earth. I mean, he was just a great narrator for that series. I, just every one of these images, as I'm as I'm scrubbing through this particular minute, every one of them could have been a poster in itself. There's just such uh, fantastic views of the astronauts, fantastic views of of the hardware and of, uh, of the earth, you know, and it does capture the idea of how much, you know, how dynamic that, that launch is, as, especially after it's doing the uh, pitch over and they, 
you know, they're, they're heading out into space, but they're trying to, trying to add more of their horizontal velocity so they can, they can get into orbit. Just a, a beautiful scene. And it ends in that last, uh, the, the last couple of seconds with, uh, just a fireball of the, of the S2 engines lighting up and, and burning its way into, into orbit. I just, I, I just, one of, one of the most enjoyable minutes of, of, of this movie. I think just if, if you like, if, if you're a hardware junkie, like, like you and I are, it's uh, it's great looking. Uh, the looking the whole launch sequence is amazing. I, you know, these minutes have been a lot of fun just because it's, when I think of the movie, there's two parts of the movie that always stand out for me. And it's this one and literally the, uh, the whole tense reentry thing that we'll talk about later. Um, yeah. Those are the two most, you know, the two parts that stick out the most for me. You really feel like you're just kind of crammed in the ship and it's, everything's happening so fast too. It just, it, the, <laughs> the cuts, the cuts are really fast. It adds to the tension. Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's not, uh, you know, the, the pace becomes more leisurely in when we get, when we finally get into orbit, the, the edits become a little bit longer. We'll talk about that in the next couple of days, but, uh, but right here, it's just about every other second is a new scene, a new scene, a new scene. And the sound is great too. All those uh, the the trumpets uh, blaring away as you know, it just it sounds like they're really on a mission here and they're really, really going hard at it. Well, and I something I just noticed we were talking about the Capcom. The Capcom is Brett Cullen who would play I think Dave Scott in From that, Earth to the Moon. Is that right? That that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he uh, uh, I love how they recycled a lot of the people from the movie Apollo thirteen into uh, From the Earth to the Moon. Uh, but they're all in different different roles for the most part. But at the same token, they were you know from kind of carryovers from the movie. Yeah, yeah. And they're they're of a they're of a type. If not, you know, it's not the same character, but they are definitely they were born to do those roles. I mean, Ed Ed Harris has to be in the space program somewhere. If he if he's <laughs> yeah. not John Glenn, he has to be Gene Kranz. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just a just a beautiful scene. Um, well, I think that's about all we can talk about in in this particular uh, thing, and I'm sure other people have other other views of how of how of this particular minute. But it's it is one of my favorites. Um, but if you if you all would like to talk about this uh, more, we are available on the social media. Sure enough, on Twitter at uh, Apollo 13 Minute and uh, Facebook at the Apollo 13 Minute Mission Control. Uh, if you haven't listened to previous episodes or if you want to catch up on previous episodes, you can go to the big site, Apollo13Minute.com, Apollo13Minute.com. Go to uh, iTunes or to Google Play or wherever you pick up your podcast. Search for Apollo 13 Minute and uh, subscribe, and you can get us delivered to you hot and fresh every day, Monday through Friday. But we'll be back here tomorrow with uh, a little bit more information as the astronauts make their way into uh, Earth orbit. Uh, so it uh, looks like uh, loss of signal in about 30 seconds. So we will catch you here tomorrow here on the Apollo 13 Minute.